trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I can't tell you what an honor it is to get to do this program on a daily basis. And I know you think, well, gee, sounds like it's really tough, Brian. You just sit down, crack open a mic and start yakking, right? Actually, there is a little bit more to it. And I'm I'm not saying that uh, this is something that, uh, you know, nobody but me can do. There are a lot of people out there doing it. But we live in such an interesting and pivotal time. and, And, you know, whether you agree with anything that I share here or not, I think most of us would agree. Most reasonable people would say, yeah, there, there's, some, uh, there's some very serious historical potential for the times that we're living in. And, and that means it could go very well or it could go very bad, depending on you know, which way things shake out. The thing that we tend to underestimate is how much influence we have as individuals in how things turn out. So I'm not saying that you and I are going to single-handedly solve all the world's problems, but I will say that we have a lot more influence than we sometimes allow ourselves to believe. And this program is not only about understanding what's happening in the world around us, despite all the efforts to prevent us from seeing the truth, you know, through the fact checkers and others who are, you know, trying to, to limit our ability to access the truth. But also, we have to be able to see what we can do as individuals, like right there in our realm of influence. And every single one of us has influence. If you want to be a leader, even if you don't want to be a leader, if you want to exercise that influence wisely, that's where it makes a difference in the world. So with that in mind, let's learn a little bit more about what's happening in our world today, as well as what you and I can do rather than sit there and wring our hands and just be viewers who are, you know, soaking it all up and waiting for someone to tell us what to do. Our program here is brought to you by wonderful sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. thought I'd start out with a, a terrific article. I just stumbled across this this morning, and it was so good. I was like, okay, going to have to lead off with this one. It's from Jeff Thomas from International Man, and it, it answers the question, how does government gain so much control over our lives? And the answer is, well, because government and its functionaries sell us fear by constantly telling us the sky is falling. Jeff Thomas puts it this way. He says, governments are in the flim-flam business. Pared down to the bare essentials, governments can be very useful in passing and enforcing a small number of very basic laws. But he says these laws should be limited to policing those who would seek to aggress against others or their property. Governments, governments rather, may also have a value in providing protection from invasion, organizing an army of able-bodied people to address this collective problem if and when it occurs. And that's about it. Beyond that, the private sector can and almost always does do a better job at virtually everything else. Therefore, a government should be small, cost very little to run, and do as little as possible. Yeah, doesn't exactly describe our our current situation today, does it? But he says, since a government already exists, why not have it do more? Why not assign it some of those tasks that tend not to attract businessmen? Well, the simple but almost universally little understood reason is that governments do not actually produce anything. 
They are in fact a parasitical construct that consumes money but creates nothing of worth. Unlike businesses, they don't operate on a profit basis. In fact, few politicians or civil servants have any grasp of the concept that prosperity is only created when someone invests his money in a venture, creates a profit, and saves or reinvests the difference. Although this may seem like a harsh criticism, it's born out of the fact that governments consume money and are more wasteful than any business would be. Worse, politicians and civil servants typically fail entirely to understand that this is a fundamental problem. And yet, like all people, people in governments wish to personally advance, both in position and financial worth. And here's where the perennial bugbear of governments appears. Since governments, by rights, should never expand unless absolutely necessary, and since this is never enough for those people who... who for those who people any government, rather, he says they must somehow con the public into believing that government expansion is for the good of the people. Ergo, even the smallest of governments in the smallest of jurisdictions will learn to cajole the public. As the government grows, the con game grows, and duplicity, trickery, and skullduggery become the lifeblood of government. Any government. The con game becomes, vote for me, and I'll provide you with something at the expense of someone else. It is the primary business of any government to grow its own power and wealth at the expense of its people. Now, Jeff Thomas says at some point, all governments figure out the greatest way to expand their own power and personal wealth is through fear. If a people can be made afraid, the government can bypass reason and appeal to emotion, always an easier sell. For millennia, governments like organized religions, and for the same reason, have peddled the fear of a demon, usually in the form of an aggressive opponent from outside the jurisdiction who can be regarded as wishing to aggress against the country. In modern times, however, the spin doctors have done this concept one better. They've learned to peddle not an individual, country, or army as the demon, but a concept. Now, he says, as the reader will know, in recent decades... All any government needed to do is claim that something they oppose is related somehow to terrorism, and they'll be given carte blanche to crush it, however implausible the given reasoning may be. Another highly successful demon is climate change. He says the climate change concept was invented out of whole fabric by the Club of Rome, which was created in 1968 by David Rockefeller. It was originally called global cooling, as at that time the Earth was passing through one of its cyclic cooling periods. However, that period soon came, to, soon came to an end, and the Earth entered a global warming period. So the same science that was used for global cooling was then attributed without any change whatever to the new global warming. When that cycle ended and the proponents of global warming again had egg on their faces for pushing, for, for pushing warming during a new periodic cooling cycle, the proponents finally got clever and just renamed it climate change. And from that day forward, any flood, drought, hurricane, tornado, or variation in the ice caps has immediately been blamed on increased climate change. Even though such occurrences have been with us forever and will be with us forever. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has repeatedly polled scientists as to whether or not they agree that climate change exists. And the IPCC states over 97% agree. But what's not asked is whether climate change is a direct result of man's intervention. Asked if the climate changes from time to time, the answer is, of course, yes. In fact, 100% of scientists should agree, based on the wording of the question. But, of course, this is not science at all, but deception. Always phrase the question in such a way that you will receive the desired answer. 
So the outcome is that the great majority of people are sold on the idea that climate change is due to man's creation of CO2 and that mankind has to be controlled or he will destroy the planet with CO2 emissions. Rather. Now, Jeff Thomas says, since scientists are represented as agreeing on this, people tend not to question the logic. The fact that all plants breathe CO2 and would die without it, and that if all plant life were to expire, all animal life would then expire, that doesn't occur to the listener. The government has spoken, and he needs to be afraid. Since the mid-1970s, politicians have periodically claimed that life on Earth will come to an end in a decade or so if emissions are not eliminated globally. Whenever one of these deadlines passes, the presenters simply move up the date another decade or so, maintaining the fear, but never actually reaching the end of the world. Of course, the great lie should be exposed due to the fact that governments do not actually pass laws to create or to eliminate rather CO2 emissions. What they create is taxation and fines for those manufacturers who create CO2. So apparently it's all right to end the world if you pay a hefty tax instead of cutting CO2. So phrases like the Jews will destroy Germany, the Iranians will destroy the world if they can make a nuclear bomb, your car will destroy the earth. But Air Force One which creates 336 times the CO2 of a car, will not. His point is, with government propaganda, the sky is always falling. All the best propaganda appeals at a gut level. If people can be made to abandon reason and accept government-created fear, they can be controlled. Now, he says, that doesn't mean governments can't ever be trusted, but it means that they shouldn't ever be trusted. They should always be questioned, not only as their propaganda is so often false, but as they are inherently in the flim-flam business. That's a beautiful explanation, again, from Jeff Thomas. Check it out. I have a link to this article in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. In fact, I want to extend an invitation. If you haven't already subscribed to my daily show notes, it's a very simple thing. Go to my website, again, thebrianheightshow.com. Go to the show notes at the very bottom of the page. You'll see a nice big button that says subscribe. Click that button, and I will send you a copy of those show notes each and every day that I do the show. In fact, I will actually do you one better. And as an added bonus, I will send you, absolutely free of charge, my daily Hide in Plain Sight program. It's just a very short form Actually, I'll send you the script to it so you don't have to deal with, you know, large files coming into your email inbox. But it's just a little bit of distilled wisdom that's, you know, sometimes hiding right there in plain sight. Yes, it's a play on my name. Please, I was trying to be clever, but I think you might find some value in it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Just want to tell you briefly about Garage Door Pros. They are located in southwestern Utah, serving St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. And yes, garage doors are what they do. That's installation, service, and repair. Whether it's for a residential home, whether it's for a commercial business, they're the ones who will take care of you. And I mean really take care of you. Go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Check out the reviews of their many happy customers. And when that need arises, you get on the horn and talk to them. 435-525-2773. That's garagedoorproservices.com. All right, so much good stuff today. You know, some days, I have to tell you, I, I look around for 
um, for information. And there's sometimes it's like, wow, there's there's a lot of information out there, but very little that I feel like would be worth your while or, you know, would, would give insights into what's happening in the world. This is not one of those days. This is one of those days where there is actually an abundance of great topics. And the hardest part is trying to figure, OK, which one do I want to share? So I'm going to touch on one from Barry Brownstein that just really grabbed my attention. Barry is a wonderful writer and uh, and thinker, and, and I love his approach. I, there's, there's light in this man's writing. And, and if you understand why, um, why is it so important to gravitate towards sources of light in this time, you know, you'll get it. If not, you'll think, okay, this sounds really metaphysical, Brian. We're, you know, what are you talking about? But his latest article, and this is for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, when the family is abolished, people starve. Now, I'm just going to hit some of the high points, but I will have a link in my show notes where you can access this and read it thoroughly, and I hope you will. Barry Brownstein says Sophie Lewis wants to abolish the family. In her sympathetic review of, uh, of Lewis's book, that's the book that Lewis has written, apparently, Aaron McLock traces through the utopian views of the anti-family movement. She talks about the 19th century Fournier communes that freed women of the drudgery of cooking for their families. Well, Lewis wants to expand on the idea of kitchenless households to include collective child care. Maglock writes, The family, Lewis and other abolitionists and feminists argue, privatizes care. They, the legal and economic structure of the nuclear household warps love and intimacy into abuse, ownership, scarcity. Children are private property, legally owned and fully economic de- economically dependent on their parents. The hard work of value, looking after children, cooking and cleaning, is hidden away and devalued, performed for free by women or for scandalously low pay by domestic workers. Now, Magak writes, we abolish the most fundamental unit of privatization and scarcity in our society. More care, more love for all. So, what, what you're seeing here is family abolitionists see themselves as liberators. But Barry Brownstein says their dreams are only dystopian. Only through force can the family be abolished as a crucial foundation of society. There is no love in force. The utopian hope of more love really means more hate for all. More love for all was not how it worked out when Mao sought to abolish the family during his great leap forward. Like the Chinese communists, Lewis sees no need for every family to cook wash clothes, and raise children. For the Chinese, instead of paradise, the outcome was the worst man-made famine in history. In his meticulously researched book, Tombstone, The Great Chinese Famine, 1958 to 1962, Chinese journalist Yang Jisheng reports in harrowing detail the totalitarian-induced famine that killed 36 million Chinese. The toll of Mao's famine exceeds by many times the the toll of Stalin's death by starvation of Ukrainians. Mao and other Chinese communists, according to Jixing, saw the family as the social foundation of the private ownership system and a major impediment to communism. In a 1958 speech, Mao said, In socialism, private property still exists, factions still exist, families still exist. Families are the product of the last stage of primitive communism, and every last trace of them will be eliminated in the future. Mao continued, In the future, the family will no longer be beneficial to the development of productivity. Many of our comrades don't dare to consider problems of this nature because their thinking is too narrow. 
Now, Jiaxing took a deep dive into the Chinese Communist Party archives. Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai believed that through liberation, thorough liberation required liberating women from their household duties. Enlai promoted communal kitchens and communal nurseries as the sprouts of communism. Vice Chair of the Communist Party, Liu Shaoqi, observed that by eliminating families, it would be possible to eliminate private property. I just got to step out of the article here for just a moment and say, are, are you grasping the common thread here? And by the way, this is very much in line with what Marx was, was teaching as well. You know, it's always the battle of the classes, the oppressed versus the oppressors. Well, he saw families as oppressive as well. And I guess the point, the simple point that, that I would hope you would take away from this is it has always been a central tenet of communism to do away with the family. Now, I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, primarily from a religious point of view, but um, to me, God's plan for happiness is based in the family. I think the family actually is, is the basic institution of a society. I think it precedes government. I think in the absence of government, a family that is functioning and healthy can make it through just about anything. A society, on the other hand, cannot survive the destruction of the family. And I think history bears that out very well. So again, I'm just touching on a couple of the high points here. I really would encourage you, read Barry Brownstein's article, When the Family is Abolished, People Starve. In particular, he goes into some really, I mean, this, this is painful detail about what happened in China as, as that cultural revolution moved forward. And, you know, the communal kitchens, you know, that were supposedly there to serve everybody and we we're all going to be equal under the party and equal under communism. No, people, people were equal, but they were equal in, in, their, in their starvation. Even the food that they served when they had it was horrifically bad. It's, it's you know, don't, don't eat too much before you read about what, what they were, were left to, to, uh, to subsist on. And again, tens of millions starved. Let me skip ahead here to the end, and I'll just give you kind of the, the summary. Barry Brownstein talks about how Mao knew that uh, the destruction of the family in China did not mean more care, more love. Communist Party Vice Chair Liu Shaoqi told Mao, history will record the role you and I played in the starvation of so many people, and the cannibalism will also be memorialized. Now, Barry Brownstein says none of this is what family abolitionists like Lewis have in mind, but despite all his horrific crimes, Mao didn't have mass starvation in mind when he set out to abolish the family. It was an unintended consequence. Mao blamed the unfathomable millions of dead on political and class enemies. And as always with totalitarians, mistakes were made, but not by me. So this is not to, to necessarily horrify you, but to, to at least get you to consider. It's not like we can't point to, to an event or two in history and say, is there something that could be learned here when we start chipping away at the family as one of those foundations of society? Now, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know... I talk often about how family is one of seven societal institutions, government being another, media, academia, religion, business, and community being the others. Only government uses force to accomplish its goals. And right now we are living in a time where, well, it seems like uh, people have, have 
pretty much outsourced as much as they can to government, and some people would like to continue to outsource even more. They want that complete top-down control, which, by the way, is uh, that's one of the hallmarks of collectivism. Whether you call it communism, socialism, whatever ism, even fascism is a form of collectivism. None of them are compatible with a healthy, functioning society. None of them are compatible with healthy, functioning families. There's always something that takes precedent. And I, I'm going to just throw this out there. I think that's by design. I think that is to eliminate God's influence as much as possible in a society, simply because totalitarian ideologies cannot countenance any competing moral authority, especially one that uh, is above their government. Hope that makes sense. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com for this awesome article by Barry Brownstein. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't spend a lot of time on politics simply because a lot of it comes down to, well, we're talking about this personality and that personality. And, and a lot of that can get very subjective or very tribal. And so I, I focus more on cultural things than on politics. But I'm going to make an exception here just because there's some pretty big news. And, and Tom Luongo had an excellent article yesterday on his blog. Um, I picked this up off of ZeroHedge.com. They reprinted it. Who's afraid of Tulsi Gabbard? Everyone. Tom Luongo says, uh, this isn't the biggest news of the week, but it may turn out to be so, he says, if I'm right about what this means and where it leads. Former Representative Tulsi Gabbard formally left the Democratic Party in a public announcement this morning on Twitter. Here's her full statement. She said, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by by racializing rather every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms, are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, demonize the police and protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, believe in open borders, weaponize the national security state to go after political opponents, and above all, dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. She says, I believe in a government that is of, by, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government of, by, and for the powerful elite. And she says, I'm calling on my fellow common-sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, I invite you to join me. And by the way, he links to, Tom Luongo links to the full statement that she makes her actual show. She, I believe she actually has a podcast, the Tulsi Gabbard Show. There's a link in there. You can watch that entire video and, and hear it in her own words. Now, Tom Luongo says Gabbard's statement is a big deal, given the timing, less than one month out from the midterm elections. And he knows, he says, I know a lot of people are really torn on Gabbard. She elicits from the Patriot or MAGA crowd the same kind of unthinking division that Donald Trump elicits from the world. And there were a few nuanced takes on either of these people. This is because they represent threats to the people who are desperately trying to maintain control over the political and economic system. So it doesn't matter if they're competent or not. Since that system is failing rapidly, 
The sociopolitical immune system must be vaccinated against all foreign ideas. So the modus operandi is always the same. As they rise in popularity, seed and amplify their faults to gaslight some would-be supporters. In the case of Gabbard, it was her invitation to the 2015 World Economic Forum Young Leaders Conference and her positions on key domestic policy issues. Now, he says people don't like Gabbard for these reasons. Some of them are valid criticisms. Her voting record is progressive on democratic economic issues, or domestic economic issues, rather. But he says, like a lot of young people, they come in with certain ideas and they leave with others after peeking behind the curtain. This focus on past specifics keeps many projecting personal anxieties onto them rather than assessing their personal journey. And this precludes thinking strategically about how they can be an asset. And the only knee-jerk rejecting them for and only knee-jerk rejecting them rather for failing to pass some purity test. Might I remind you what that type of behavior is reminiscent of? It's left brain dominance bordering on possession. This is threat assessment, a function of the left brain taken to its extreme. It's what drives wokeness as well as the opposite. We live in times designed for maximal anxiety. There are threats to our being and livelihoods multiplying seemingly by the day. President Biden is casually talking about nuclear war. For crying out loud, we're all stressed out, Tom Luongo says. I get it. But too much of anything is a bad thing. The mechanisms of paranoia are the same for all parts of the political spectrum. And the anxiety pimps, hat tip to Dexter White for that, with their hands on the levers of the psyops, understand this very, very well. Giving in to those anxieties leads only to looking at how something can only be a threat rather than an asset. And he says, if you're triggered by me saying this now, well, QED. This is no different than those who can only see the Fed as a threat and, for example, any and all past relationships Jerome Powell had with the bad guys becomes prima facie evidence that effery is afoot. It looks like reasoning and analysis when it's just pattern recognition from previously being programmed. So Tom Luongo says, this is my primary point when it comes to Gabbard and her announcing this morning. Her announcement, rather, this morning. The real psyop isn't that she's some Klaus von Kami schnitzel triple agent leading us like the Pied Piper to our own doom. The real psyop is that many people can't consider her as anything else but that. Now he says, if you don't doubt me, look on my Twitter feed. He has a link to it. After I pointed this exact thing out, Tulsi Gabbard triggers people because they can't believe she walked up to the World Economic Forum mountain, was offered the precious, and turned them down. But that's exactly what it looks like she did. He says, this woman was the perfect Davos Trojan horse. She was young, attractive, well-spoken. She's also a woman of color who joined the army after 9-11 to serve for patriotic reasons. And on top of that, a freaking Democrat. Yahtzee! When you look at the landscape for 2024, who do the Democrats have who aren't completely Looney Tunes? So their rejection of Gabbard in 2020 was the big tell, and it had nothing to do with the Clintons. This was a woman who in 2016, after being groomed for greatness, resigned from the DNC over Hillary's corruption of the primaries. At a moment in time, everyone, and I mean everyone, thought Hillary would be the next president. Tom Luongo says, even I didn't believe my own arguments that Trump would win in May 2016. Gabbard defied the most vindictive woman in U.S. political circles a woman with a presumed body count that measures in the dozens, 
who was supposed to seal the Davos deal and to sell out the U.S. to the globalists in their planned Great Reset. That takes immense stones and speaks to a lot of personal integrity. Now, you can construct some MI6 John LeCar narrative that she was just playing the long game for Klaus, but seriously, folks, Occam's razor is almost always valid. When she ran for president in 2020, was she promoted to be the one who would stand with Joe Biden? No. If she was Klaus's girl, she would have been. She would have gotten more than one delegate. She wouldn't have been given the Ron Paul treatment at the convention. No, what she actually did was destroy the presidential ambitions of the woman of color who had been chosen, Kamala Harris, and she did it without any DNC support whatsoever. She did it with almost no speaking time. It was the most effective political takedown in history, save Ron Paul's destruction of Rudy Giuliani in 2008. So to believe this narrative that Gabbard is a World Economic Forum Trojan horse means you have to believe in a stage play so stupid and complicated that it beggars belief. So he says, I ask everyone in the audience, if you are triggered by Tulsi Gabbard, reflect on why that is and where those feelings come from, because they aren't coming from her. She endorsed Biden very reluctantly, and it made sense. She didn't like Trump personally, and she was still nominally a party member. She's not perfect. But he says, I don't need perfect in this environment. But per my previous arguments in January, he says, Gabbard can position herself as a moderate populist, a kind of John Anderson figure from the 1980 election that ensures that no Democrat has a prayer of winning the 2024 election. Now, that was then. But he says, today, even today, he says, my thinking is even more insane. As the GOP vice presidential candidate, she can be a voice of sanity on foreign policy and human rights, including vaccines, social credit scores, etc., leaving her running mate to focus on domestic issues and rebuilding America. So what does that announcement actually mean for the future? Well, he says it means that my off-the-cuff hope for a Florida Governor Ron DeSantis Tulsi Gabbard 2024 unity ticket that I discussed with Garland Nixon on my podcast back in May is taking shape and right on schedule. He says, I know Robert Barnes believes and or has real information that the 2024 ticket is Trump DeSantis, and that may still be the default plan. He says, I'm not privy to anything. I'm just reading the tea leaves. But Trump has to navigate serious opposition as the Democrats try to take him out of the equation. Generals always fight the last war. Davos is fighting Trump when they should be fighting the generational shift just over the horizon from boomers to Gen X. He says the Democrats think they can win in 2024 by taking Trump out of the picture through lawfare and blaming the country's ills on us not accepting their lunatic spending packages. Gavin Grusom is clearly positioning himself for this role. The fallback plan, he says, would be invalid is if Trump is invalidated, would be Trump or rather DeSantis at the top of the ticket with someone else to soften the edges and bring the country together. And here Tom Luongo says there's no one else in American politics to do that better than Tulsi Gabbard. Interesting. There's more to this article. I hope you'll take the time to check it out. It is included in my show notes at the Brianhideshow.com. Again, Tom Luongo in a piece that was published on his own blog and then republished on uh, ZeroHedge.com. Now, I'm not getting all giddy over, you know, woo, you know, let's get all excited for the 2024 election. But I do get giddy at the thought of the uh, political class, the ruling class, soiling themselves at the idea of someone who's palatable to the public stepping forward and, and running for office. 
You think they were nasty to Trump? Wait till you see what they'll do to, to Tulsi Gabbard. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com and LifesavingFood.com and also MonticelloCollege.org. Links to each one of these sponsors can be found in my show notes. You really should take a look at their websites. See if they have something that could be of value to you. So, I've got three quick articles I want to touch on briefly here. Um... Now, you don't have to agree with anything that I share with you, but I found some of these interesting and I thought worthwhile. One of them is from Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Education. I'm sorry, Economic Research. That's AIER.org. Why Biden's pot pardons are a step in the right direction. I know. I'm the same. Painful as it might be to find some point of agreement with Joe Biden. I can agree. I think he did the right thing in pardoning people for pot possession. I think it should be done on a much larger basis. Now, you know, some people, you know, are just forever going to be like, ah, the devil's weed. You know, it's, it's, it's reefer madness. It never should have been illegal in the first place. And, and I'm not telling you that means you should go out and start smoking pot right now. I'm just telling you that it was part of a larger war on drugs, which was really a war on freedom. And if you understand the history of, of drug laws, you'll understand that prior to 1914, you could go into, well, you could grow your own if you wanted to, if you wanted to smoke the reefer or smoke hemp, whatever the case may be. You know, President Lincoln enjoyed a nice pipe of hemp as, as a way of relaxing. Not the same thing as sitting there getting baked, but, you know, the idea was it was none of the government's business. You could go into a drugstore and you could ask for, I need uh, cocaine. And they would give you pharmaceutical-grade cocaine. You would, could purchase it right across the counter. No prescription needed. Now, people got addicted to narcotics. Just like people become addicted to alcohol. But the difference was, it wasn't considered a criminal offense to access those things. And once it became such, you know, government took that and expanded on that in the 1970s with the war on drugs. It became a wholesale assault against not just your freedoms and your ability to to choose. Well, if I want to ingest something, you know, I should be able to do so. But it also became an assault against your property. Asset forfeiture laws are a good example of this. And, and you know, I know this is going to sound like you're disrespecting law enforcement when you say this, but when you have law enforcement teams whose sole job is to look for cars carrying with drivers that are carrying, you know, uh, what they consider a large amount of cash, which could be several thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars or more and to stop and take it from them because that's suspicious. I'm sorry, that's theft. That is robbery. And if it was being done by anyone who wasn't wearing a state costume, you know, the, the person whose money that is would be justified in shooting the robber dead because it's thievery, but we've dressed it up and made it respectable. And it's, it's, it's just another way to undermine people's freedoms. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, this is saying that drugs are good, okay? It's, it's not encouraging people to, to do drugs. It's just putting it in its proper context, which is, it may be a vice. And I know that there are vice squads, but I, I like Lysander, Schooner, Lysander Spooner's definition of a vice, which is mistakes that people make in their pursuit of happiness. Not crimes, mistakes. 
And sometimes they come with consequences. And, and, you know, if a person keeps their vice in private, like in the privacy of their own home or in their own yard or in their own bedroom, it should not be a matter for man-made laws. It doesn't make it right, but it's, it's more of a moral law or a moral failing on their part and less of a criminal offense. We blurred that line, and unfortunately, we are reaping some of the consequences. So that's a long way of saying the president was right in doing this. Of course, I also understand this is, this is just a very crass attempt to buy votes. Oh, look at him. After this guy put many, many people in prison through laws that, and policies that he supported that uh, you know, put people in jail for having you know, a few flakes of weed in their pocket. I know the hypocrisy is staggering, but I think you'll really like Art Carden's article. Strongly recommend you take a look at it. Got another good one here. This is from Frank DeVito from the AmericanConservative.com, a Second Amendment with teeth. And this is a great recounting of how the court's Bruin decision earlier this year actually protects Americans' Second Amendment rights. And I mean in the sense that there are a lot of states, and particularly Democrat-controlled state governments, starting to realize that uh, their standing and their, their ability to create new gun laws is being swept out from underneath them. And, and that's a good thing. I know the anti-gun people are never going to see it that way, but uh, we have seen probably one of the strongest restorations of the Second Amendment, meaning restrictions on government power and its ability to infringe on people's right to keep and bear arms, this is one of the most significant developments that uh, has happened in a very, very long time. That's cause for celebration. So I hope you'll take a look at that article again from Frank DeVito from theamericanconservative.com. Now, here's the note that I'd like to end on. Um, I know these are trying times for all of us. Alan Stevo has this incredible call to action for those who don't intend to wander the halls of eternity wishing that we'd stood up for truth when we could have done so. I can't remember where the quote came from, but um, that, that phrase, the halls of eternity are long. And I, I, I think it's, uh, is it Bill Brannon? I believe it's from a book called Let Us Pray, P-R-E-A-Y, or P-R-E-Y, Pray. And he talks about someday, somewhere, far from this place, you may have to stand and look that young soldier in the face who took the hit for you and who died standing up, not really knowing why, but because he understood that liberty matters. And, and his point is, right now there's a lot of comfortable places to sit. You know, to get up out of the armchair, to walk into the flames of history, to actually stand up and make a difference. And this is not a call for violence. You understand that. This is simply to use your influence wisely where you can. But if you miss that opportunity... I do believe that there's going to come a point we'll face people in eternity who did make that sacrifice. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to have to look at my shoes or whatever, you know, sandals or (laughs) maybe my bare feet if that's what it's like, you know, in the next life. I don't want to feel the shame of looking at them knowing I could have done more, but instead I chose not to because I was just looking for safety. So here's how Alan Stevo puts it, okay? He's he's not nearly as as, uh, militant sounding, but he he talks about... uh, he talks about how, you know, voting and lobbying, yeah, those are ways to change things. Controlling government, those are ways to change things. But he says, really, what you need to do is help build something better. 
And I've heard this refrain for some time. In fact, I got to tip my hat to my friend Simon, who uh, long ago said, you know, I think we reached the point where really our efforts are best, best spent focusing on building whatever it is that comes next. The, the current system right now is so corrupted, I don't think it can be saved. Any more than you could pull a rotten, mushy banana out of the trash and, I can restore this, let me just put it in the fridge for a few days and see if it gets better. It's not going to get better. But what you can do is focus on building something better. The failure of the institutions is all around us. And, and here's where he gets into summoning the will and purpose to step up and do something. He says, as I walk the town that houses me today, he says, I know that the men and women who occupy the grandest cathedral will never summon the will or purpose to build such a cathedral. In fact, he says, the men and women who occupy the boardrooms of the landmark buildings will never summon the will or purpose to build such a building. The great statues, the great books, the great inventions, the occupiers are unable to summon the will or the purpose to make such things. These are not the people who make a society great. They are the critics and janitors. He says the will and purpose it takes to be generative is unknown to them. And yet you and I look at these janitors in fear. We look at them as, oh, they're so powerful. But he says, that's artifice. It's trapping. Alan Stevo says, I look to you and me and those like us who have the generative strength and vision. Now I only need you to stop looking so much at the parasitic ones and at the janitors of this area. I need you to stop honoring them. Stop granting them authority over you. I need you to simply recognize them for who they are. And he says, once you do, the unimaginably large opportunity that is around you to build the future will be unmistakable. Now, he's a realist about this. He says, sure, some things about this moment suck. The trappings of old need to be burned away and some pain may come. But something very special will rise from those ashes built by people like you and me. And then he asks, now, will you sit out such a moment in history or will you embrace it for all the opportunity it can give you? to help the bad around you turn into the miraculously good. That's a role you get to choose to play. That's a role I get to choose to play. And he says, imagine the possibilities of a world one or two decades from now set into motion because you and I this day rose to the challenge and stepped into those roles. I don't know about you, but I kind of need that kick in the seat of the pants every so often. Because sometimes I do find myself looking for someplace safe. Where can I just hide out and just, you know, wait for this storm to pass? I really believe that uh, the storm is scary, but I believe with God's help, we can march with confidence into it and help make a difference where it's needed most. Again, I say that with God's help. This is The Brian Hyde Show.